0: Listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno.
1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's guest, who is a former pilot. We spent nearly 36 years in uniform in some of the most notable battles throughout the war on terror and beyond. We'll get to that in just a moment. Our normal reminders, guys, please give us a follow on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show. We'll take feedback there as well. Uh, whether you like the show, love the show, whatever it may be, just uh, hit us up there. Of course, you can always email your guest suggestions to producer at Hazard Dot com. Uh we will take guest suggestions there. We love hearing from you guys as well. Continue to leave Apple reviews. We need those very much to continue to help grow the show. It doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. And we love hearing the comments and the feedback from everybody as well. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Uh, you can go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. It's a great way for you guys to help out veterans' charities all across America without even getting off your couch. And same from your smartphone. We'll redirect it to the app so it's really easy and convenient. And then, of course, finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch all of these Hazard Ground episodes as well uh, and continue to leave comments there on our YouTube channel as well. All right, let's get to this week's guest. This is a story that I'm really excited to tell. He spent nearly 36 years in uniform as a pilot and a warrant officer. Uh, He has close to 20 deployments. He spent nearly 20 years in the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, one of the most notable piloting flying regiments in all of the military. He's been in battles from Desert Storm, Desert Shield to the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, Beyond that, the hunt for Osama bin Laden at Tora Bora, the shoot down during Operation, Ana, uh, Operation Anaconda, Chase Bo Bird Doll, and as well tied to lone survivor in the Kunar Valley of Afghanistan. He is currently the deputy director of emergency services in Orange, deputy commissioner rather, in Orange County, New York for emergency services. It's Alan Mack joining us here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Alan, welcome. Thank you so much for being hey. here. Thanks for being. let me on. Uh, look, I, I mean, I, I, the introduction says it all. There is so much to get to here that I am curious about. Um, and it is amazing that you have been, I, I, I mean, fortunate is the right word, to to be able to to be part of the invasion. Operation Anaconda, Bo Bergdahl, you know, uh, Lone Survivor. Like, these are some of the most notable parts of the global war on terror, and somehow you've touched them all. Uh, when you look back, is it just luck? I mean, or it, being in SOAR obviously makes you one of the limited number of people who can has the skill set for these jobs. But still, I mean, even there are guys who have been in the regiment that long who don't get all of those assignments.
0: Well, uh, some of it was luck, if you might say. Uh, I'm like the Forrest Gump of the GWAT. You know, I just seem <laughs> to be part of everything that happened. It's like, uh, let's like. Of chocolates, yeah, but right? um, now I, I think the the big thing was I was the as far as MH forty seven Chinook pilots go, I was the lead pilot. So just by that position, uh, you know that by virtue of that, that kind of puts me in a position
1: to to do some of the bigger things. I mean, and it's crazy because uh, I was reading you've got like over six thousand seven hundred flight hours, and nearly half of that. It's under night vision, which is obviously the, the toughest part of flying. I mean, that in and of itself, when when you hear those numbers out loud, you're like, "Wow!" I mean, that's that's insane to think about. You no, know, for me, it's it's normal. I mean, I'm a night stalker. Well, you know, we fly at night. Sense. You know, but, <laughs> but you
0: know, it's funny. I was down at uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, with some friends, some peers uh, that were not night stalkers, and we were having lunch, and I guess so. Uh, so, Al, how much uh, MVG time do you have? Night vision goggle flight. And I said, oh, I don't know, about 4,000 hours. And they said, no, no, not total time, MVG time. I said, no, that is MVG time. I got, you know, close to 7,000 uh, total. And they're like, holy crap. I'm like, guys, yeah. Night Stalker, we, we fly at night. <laughs>
1: yeah, kind of, not, not just a clever name. Uh, you know, there you go. Somebody, yeah. somebody thought that went out well. Contrary to what the Army usually does, but that's a whole different conversation. Uh, start back at the beginning for me. Uh, when did you get in the Army? How and why? And, and you know, uh, where did it all begin?
0: Well, it all began when I was probably 10 or 11 years old watching the Be All You Can Be commercials. And uh, I remember you know, remember TV Guide. You know, I, there was a thing in there, a tear-out for uh, Army recruiter. So I sent off to that. I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. And the guy sent me back a nice letter, you know, the recruiter. He's like, hey, I see you're a little bit young. Maybe call me back in about 10 years, you know, <laughs> but here's some stickers. And uh, believe it or not, that, that stuck with me. I mean um, – in the, in the late 60s, you know, the news at night was all Vietnam, yeah. and all you ever saw was helicopters, Hueys in particular, uh, and I just wanted to fly helicopters. So, you know, my senior year in high school, I walk into an Army recruiter. Now I'm old enough, and I'm like, uh, hey, I want to fly helicopters. He's like, hey, hold on, kid. You know, it doesn't work quite that way. I was like, yeah, I saw the commercial. High school, the flight school, you know, and he's like, no, it's a little tougher than that. So why don't you join the Army as an aircraft mechanic? Get some Army Aviation time under your belt and then put it for flight school, which, you know, I mean, that was his way to get me into his his quotas. But uh, it was smart advice. I did nine years as an aircraft mechanic working on Hueys and Cobras and uh, 58s. And uh, when it came time, I was in Germany, uh, West Germany at the time in the mid 80s. And I put in for flight school, and uh, I decided if I got picked up, I'd stay in the army, and if I didn't, I would get out because that was about the nine-year mark, you know, two kids, you know, that kind of thing. And I got picked up, and uh, off I went to flight school.
1: I got to go back to the B L U you can be" thing. Still the greatest advertising slogan in the history. I don't know why we ever changed, but I was with, I was with you. I was of the B L U you can be" generation, um, and and I I always say I remarked about. Uh, you know, I, I, I had gotten off active of duty just prior to 9-11. I've spent the rest of my career in the Guard, but that was one of my reasons. I'm like, you know, this wasn't the brochure. Like, sitting in the middle of Fort Hood doing nothing, picking my underwear out of my crack all day long uh, in the heat, wasn't like what Be All You Can Be felt like. You know, I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to do something, right. uh, and, I, and I never got that opportunity. But, you know, <clears throat> that whole thing, that how it crystallized you, do you ever look back and, and – Wonder like, why didn't I just want to be a baseball player or why didn't I want to be a fireman or you know you know all the other simple dreams that kids have? You decided this and it stuck with you for forty years.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, every once in a while, I'm sure you get the same thing. Someone will say thank you for your service and I appreciate that, but you know, I don't have a good response for that other than you know, well, thanks. Yep. Uh, I enjoyed almost all of it, you know, <laughs> and I did. I mean, I really, uh, you know the the people were the best part of the whole thing, you know, I mean, that's always one of the questions, you know, what what do you miss about it? And it isn't the flying. It isn't even the missions as much as the people that I got to work with and the diversity of the people from when I was a private all the way to a CW five was just amazing. You know, guys from all over the country, some from over the world, you know, coming to work with us and, you know, the be all you can be, and it really was good, you know, and then they hit that, uh, you know, the army of one. It's like, what the hell is
1: that? <laughs> uh, I know. They, they missed on that one. And then it was army strong. And they, they had the sure. good, they had the good music for army strong. That was, that was good music in the background. Yes. It just, you know, now I have no idea what the hell the slogan is. Please sign sure. up. We need you because we can't recruit anybody anymore. That I think that's the yeah. new slogan, uh, which is again, a whole different conversation as to why we're having recruiting troubles, but, uh, different conversation for a different day. All right. So you end up getting to flight school. Um, it's this sort of long way to dream. Did you think at this point, once you got to flight school and you get through it all and you're finished and you pin on your wings that, hey, I, I've I've hit my dream. I've reached my apex here. This is great.
0: Yeah, I did, actually. You know, I, I was like, all right, I'm a, I'm a pilot, you know. And uh, what was funny is um, I always wanted to fly Hueys. So you get into flight school and everybody thinks that you can. you get to pick your track, your flight. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes they shove it down your throat based on the needs of the Army. And in my case, they were like – I was in a class of 75 people, and which was the norm at the time. That was uh, 1989. And um, I, w- I was lucky enough that the Army Chinook population was all retiring at the same time, right? So the Chinooks in Vietnam were kind of a reward for somebody who had done a tour or two flying, you know, slick Hueys or gunships or something like that. You got to fly Chinooks, so you weren't necessarily – doing assault. You know, you're in Vietnam, but you weren't doing assault. So here I am in flight school and I'm like, all right, I get Hueys. I'm going to go do, you know, air assault. I'm going to you know, take down the bad guys, that kind of thing. And they needed two Chinook pilots, W1s, which was very, very rare back in those days. So they took the number one and two uh, grade point average, which I was lucky enough to be the honor grad. And it was one of those things, I guess, that was the only metric they had in flight school was, well, what's this grade point? So I end up in Chinooks and I'm pissed. You know, it's like, what do you mean, Chinooks? I'm going to fly from airport to airport, hauling cargo. I want to do assaults. And uh, the funny thing is, is uh, once I got into Chinooks, I really enjoyed it. And I end up in Savannah, Georgia, like, I don't know, three weeks before Saddam invaded Kuwait. And uh, so he invades Kuwait. We get notified we're going to go over for Desert Shield. So they've got to train me up as fast as they can, because I'm the newest co-pilot. And um, our aircraft got shipped over on a boat, you know, a nice slow boat, you know, doing like 10 miles an hour. And uh, we flew, we followed on a a while after that. And I got to do some really interesting things. We were not flying airport to airport. Uh, There was no assaults in this. I was with the 159th out of, uh, uh, well, Savannah, our headquarters out of Bragg. And uh, we did a lot of uh, important resupplies out to the uh, the western flank when the big you know the the big left hook happened you know with Schwarzkopf's little plan for a Desert Storm yep. and uh, what was interesting for me is as a young guy you know I qualified night vision goggles and at that time the army was espousing we own the night and they did not you know uh, most of the pilots were not night vision goggle qualified and if they were they were afraid to fly them uh, these were all older guys. So here I am, you know, I'm in my twenties, ready to go. So they just flew me every chance they got, you know? So I was one of the primary crews just because I was willing to fly
1: MBGs. That's amazing. Um, I have to ask you about your time as a aircraft mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find yourself, do you think you were a better pilot because of your time as a mechanic? I mean, obviously look as a, as a pilot, you have to learn how to how the the helicopter works. You have to know, you know, if something breaks in as long, you have to know what's going on inside the engine, but not all you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, pilots like don't aren't trained to be mechanics. They have somebody for that. It's a different level of, of cognizant understanding. It's like, Oh, I'm not a mechanic. I can know my brakes in my car don't sound right. You know, but that doesn't mean I can replace the brakes. So how much better of a pilot did it make you? For me, it made me a much better pilot. Uh, in the first area,
0: it was because in flight school, especially because I learned in Huey's, right? I didn't learn in TH-55s. We were one of the first classes in multi track. Um, when guys were having to learn systems, I could focus on airspace or something. So as guys were worrying about how the engines work or the transmissions or the hydraulics, I already knew. So I could focus on, you know, uh, aeromedical stuff, you know, hypoxia and, uh, you know, exogenous factors, you know, like how medicines affect you in altitude. I could, I could learn about weather. And so that's why my grade point average was higher than the other guys, is I could study things I already, you know, they had to study stuff I knew. Right. And I got the thing. And then the other right. thing it did for me is later on as an instructor pilot, uh, especially later on in Operation Anaconda, quite frankly, uh, when I was shot down, the understanding of how an aircraft actually works, you know, what each system actually does, not just the end result, but how it works, uh, pretty much
1: helped me land that aircraft. That's amazing. All right. Um, so you're you're being thrust into this combat mission here in Desert Storm. Um, is there a part of you that thinks back to that nine year old and is like, "Hey, man, this is what we're doing. This is what we. This is us. This is what we got here for." Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, we were um, so our primary function. I mean, you know, in the hundred hour war was uh, establishing and resupplying a place called uh, Ford Operating. Forward operating base Cobra, which was where all of the uh, Apaches and artillery, all that stuff were staged. And then they moved on on Kuwait from there. So we were hauling the fuel up there and the people and the artillery and the resupply. You know, the Apaches were going down that highway of death, you know, uh, rain in hell. And, you know, they had to get fuel and ammo somehow. And that was us. And it was actually kind of a shock when uh, we were flying back from Iraq and we heard over the guard frequency you know, ceasefire, ceasefire. Offensive operations have ceased. You know, Desert Storm is over. Wow! You know, like, what the heck? We just started. <laughs> you know, we didn't experience anything bad up until that point. Uh, uh, um, nobody
1: hung a banner that said "Mission Accomplished" after that happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's pretty amazing. Um, th- that thing goes by so quick. Did you? Did you kind of feel like that was going to be the end of the best part of your military career?
0: I did. I did, yeah. It's quite simply, that was it. You know, you think about this, right? So here I was an enlisted guy in the 1980s with the Cold War going on, right? I was in Germany. Actually, I was in Korea for the first time. And, you know, the North Koreans were always threatening to invade. You know, they'd rush the border, you know, around Christmas time and get us all on alert, you know, just to harass us, if you will. And then in Germany, you know, you're always worried about, you know, the, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact coming across. And I remember thinking, in those days I don't know what I'm going to do if I get in a war, what am I, you know, it's like, I did not want to be in a war right. you know, as a soldier. Right. And I just thought, you know, something like out of a Vietnam movie would be all those horrible things happening to everybody. And it's like, really, that's a small percentage of the people on the pointy end of the spear. you know, the spear is tapered, but, uh, As years went by, especially as a pilot, you know, I wanted to be in it and Desert Storm felt like a little, I hate to say it, you know, a little bit of a letdown, you know, in that, you know, we really could have done it for a lot longer without any any problem, you know. But, I mean, that's the goal is to get in, get your mission done, and get out of there, really. Yeah, Uh, the the
1: antithesis of uh, what happened post 9-11. But, again, a whole different conversation for a different day. (laughs) So you have 10 years now between the end of Desert Storm and 9-11. I know it's hard to encapsulate 10 years, but kind of what's going on in your career, and when do you end up in 160th SOAR?
0: Okay, it's pretty simple. So we come back from Desert Storm, Mm -hmm. and remember I said that I was one of the primary MVG crews. Yep. the army learning that it did not own the night because they, you know, damaged a lot of aircraft running into sand dunes uh, in Saudi Arabia during Desert Shield. Uh, put an emphasis on night flying, so you need night crews for that. So out of 16 ship company, there's only six of us that are, you know, maintain our currency uh, with MVGs. So every exercise we did, NTC, JRTC, uh, Sand Eagle, there was all these big exercises that would go on. They always had a huge night component. So I was a primary person in that as a pilot in command. And, um, I really enjoyed it, you know, and I enjoyed the, um, the stature, if you will, amongst our company of, Oh, one of the goggle guys, you know, uh, you, you got all the priority, you got all the good trips, you got all the flight hours because the other guys who really were older and toward the end of their career, didn't want to do these things anyway, uh, so I did that. And then I got assigned, I did that for about a year, year and a half. And then I got orders for Korea. So unaccompanied tour to Korea, I, um, wanted to be an instructor pilot. And one of the stepping stones to that is to become a unit trainer. So I was the guy that would teach the other pilots or check them, uh, a couple of times a year along the, the Northern border with, uh, North Korea. So I would fly, you know, up and down the, the border, you know, from memory and uh, you know, spouting off what they call MOI, which is method of instruction. So you know, the whole time you're talking, you know, all right, at this next road we'll be turning left. We're gonna keep our altitude, you know, between you know, 100 and 200 feet, left-right of course, uh, quarter mile, you know, blah blah blah. And so that's the stuff instructor pilots do. And I did that, and one of the senior pilots uh, flew with me, and he he really thought I had what it took, and he made some phone calls and he got me uh, orders to. Uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, if I agreed to stay as an instructor there. So I end up there. Now, I'm a young W-2 at this time, CW-2, and um, I don't have a salt out of my blood yet, right? I still have some things to do as a young man, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, we get there, I get to be an instructor pilot, and my I like to say my first two set of students were a lot of fun and rewarding. Because they were, you know, young guys like me, and they wanted to learn, they wanted to do things. And then, the National Guard in Alabama changed over from CH fifty four Skycranes to CH forty sevens, and they had to come to the forty seven course. And I get to teach them how to fly it. And these are all CW fours. Uh, w five didn't exist at the time, mm-hmm. and they uh, they did not want to fly the Chinook, and they let me know it every day, you know, like it was my call to bring them there. And I hated flying with them every single day and i had a couple of sets of students like that and uh, a friend of mine came through rucker uh who knew me and he gave me a packet for the 160th he he was a 160th guy he's like "Ah, you need to come up there we need you you know we need pilots i'm like "Ah, i don't know better guys than me have got got turned away right is the way I, i put it and uh eventually i convinced my wife that it would be an okay thing to do and uh she said you give her a try i Finally filled out the packet, sent it in, and uh, I got accepted. You know, and they're like, "Ah, it'll be about a year, year and a half before we take you from Rucker." You know, because I was only there about a year, and uh, then the orders came down like, "Now we need you next month." And uh, my command was pissed. You know, they're like, "You said it would be," you know, another year. And I'm like, ah, "I don't know what to tell you." You know, yeah, and cold, I in the army. <laughs> yeah, I, it's
1: not a me just problem. Just follow orders. Um, you know, you said you hadn't had the assault out of your blood. Uh, I'm just curious. Uh, what was that like? I mean, you know, that taste of it. You, I get it. Like, I have under, I understand. I've, I've been in combat. But you know, the flip side of it is, is that you're assuming a ton of risk um, for very little reward. Like, the, the, the reward window is very small, yet the risk window is very big. And that's not always a, an equation that you want to enter yourself into. But what was it? about that first experience that made you feel like I've got more of this combat aviation stuff in my blood?
0: That's a tough question. Um, I guess, you know, when I talked earlier about, um, you know, the mission was, was, was rewarding, but Mm -hmm. you know, that was people, right? So one of the things that was neat with uh, the 160th is that we had a habitual relationship with our, we call them customers, you know, the supported unit. So And that was a result of Operation Eagle Claw uh, mm-hmm. in 1979-80. and The Iranian hostage crisis, it, yeah. Right. The idea was that you would have this uh, relationship with the ground force so that you knew what they wanted and you could help them achieve their goals better, you know, by understanding just their mindset. And uh, they would trust you, you know, because one of the problems in Eagle Claw was the ground force, which was Delta at the time, uh, did not trust their pilots who were – quite frankly, new to this whole night vision goggle thing. And, uh, that, that relationship was, was just amazing. You don't want to let them down, you know, the, I don't know. I just, uh, I like doing the mission and, uh, working with the people.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I, uh, I, I get that. I, I think that there is a certain amount of, um, I, for me, it was, things changed. Like when I deployed both times, I was single. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have a kid, you know, I didn't have kids. I didn't, I I was, I was only responsible for myself. And in retrospect, I probably made some decisions that might've made some people frown a little bit or ask me what the hell I was thinking. Um, you know, not from a tactical, like just for, you know, from a pure, Hey, I care about you. I don't want you to die kind of standpoint. Um, I don't know if I'd make those same decisions, with all this other stuff around me which is why i kind of asked because you mentioned you had kids at this point in time and you know there was uh th- that's a tough balance i think sometimes for certain people
0: yeah you know the work-life balance is one of those things that now as a much older man you know i can look back so i have a son that flies f-18s in the navy oh, and wow. i have another son who was a chinook crew chief in the 160th and he got out at eight years and the other the navy son's still doing his business and i keep saying and he has three kids right and i keep saying you know when you hit 20 years, get out. Don't stick around for some other job. Unless your wife really wants it, don't do it because it's, you know, I did all those. I could have got out of 20. they 21 probably, you know, because of nine eleven. 11 A lot of my peers got out right after that initial thing and they're still, you know, have good family relationships. My wife, you know, part of one of the things I detail in my book, you know, it's called, you know, A Night Stalker's Wars, you know, plural. So there's the GWAT, there's Desert Storm, there's some other classified operations that I kind of hint at. But my wife at the time uh, picked up an opioid addiction and alcohol, and my frequent deployments, you know, um, just exacerbated it. You know, I don't know that my not going wouldn't have changed it you know, in hindsight, but I can tell you it sped up the process, you know. Um that work-life balance is important. That's one of the things I try to impart. You know, my last assignment was was uh, at West Point. I was the flight detachment commander, and I got to work with the cadets on the skydiving team, uh, and I got to know quite a few of them as uh, what they call an officer representative, sort of a mentor. And I would kind of give them some some tips on, all right, you're going to want to do this and that, but you know, you got to always put in the back of your mind that you know families are very important and they weigh in, and so you may have got it may not be you, it may be your guys you know, that you're in charge of, you know, you get some guy that, uh, you know, wants to do something and you know, it's not a good idea. And if someone else can do it, you know, maybe you put your foot down and say, yeah, for the good of you, you're not going, you know, I know you don't like it, but tough, you know, and those are some life lessons that really, the way they say youth is wasted on the young, right? (laughs) That's
1: (laughs) true. Yeah. 100%. Uh, and I apologize, I did forget this in the intro, folks, but I have to mention this because we're going to talk about it. But Razor 03, A Night Stalker's Wars is the book that you wrote. You got uh, notes from uh, General Petraeus in there, from Admiral McRaven uh, of everything that you've done. And what we're going to get into more now starts to detail some of that. And uh, again, Razor 03, A Night Stalker's War is the name of the book. We'll talk about it more uh, as we get uh, where you can get it at the end. But um, so 9-11 happens now and you are aware. So we're at uh,
0: Fort Polk, Louisiana. Oh gosh. Doing an exercise with fifth
1: group. Okay.
0: Yeah, and um, you know I, I was flying a night flight, uh, doing a riverine infill, like putting a zodiacs mm. in, and they would link up with some uh, Navy SOCAR boats on the river. Then they'd go upriver and do some kind of a, an assault in the in the jungle, if you will. And uh, terrible rainy night. We get back to the barracks, you know, take a hot shower, go to bed. Next morning, we're in these National Guard barracks, which, you know, they're like cinder block, tile floor. So, you know, you drop a pin on the other end of the hallway and you're waking up the guys on the other end. And I'm hearing all this commotion in the hallway. And, uh, you know, I get up and I'm one of the senior guys. And I'm like, hey, shut up. You know, we're trying to sleep. And they're like, you got to turn on the news. Turn on the news. Right. So I turn on the TV and you know, the first tower had been hit. I'm like, Oh, wow. You know, that guy screwed up, you know, cause you know, the empire state building had been hit before like in the thirties, I think. And, and, you know, it's one of those things, but I was like, well, oh, that's an awful big hole. You know, that's no private plane. That's a, that's something wrong, you know, and I, I get a cup of coffee and I'm watching and all of a sudden the second bil- uh, plane comes in and it's like, now it's obvious. This is not an accident. And uh, well, that was, well, it's almost indescribable, that feeling. You know, anybody that watched that,
1: uh, what a terrible mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, uh, unreal. So being in the 160th at this point, you have to know that you're out the door here rather quickly. I mean, yeah. what, what are you hearing in the days after 9-11 and what is likely going to be your next move, your next assignment, and how bad are you guys itching to get out the door?
0: Well, at this stage of the game, we don't – you know, we're – at Fort Polk, so we have none of our secure right. communications or any of that kind of stuff, and we don't know what happened. We just know we'll probably be part of the response. So, uh, what? What? Ironically, you know, like two weeks before, I got sucked across the street from mm-hmm. uh, my company position where I was the chief pilot and the SIP to battalion. So now I'm the chief pilot of two companies instead of one. But I work for the colonel, not the majors that are actually fighting the war. So I feel like I'm out of the fight. You know, I'm not going to be part of this. I'll be part of the staff. And so the colonel and I, the battalion commander, we rent a car down there at, uh, in Louisiana. we drive back to Campbell because there's nothing flying. And uh, we get a, you know, a rundown on what's been going on. And the next day, I'm on a 15-passenger van headed for Tampa. You know, it's like a 12-hour drive from Campbell. You know, we've got, the, you know, a couple of S2 guys. There's me, a logistics guy. And we get down there and we get a brief on what's going on. And I'm at uh, soxent headquarters, so Special Operations Command, Centcom, at McDill. And everything is compartmentalized, which is, it, it plays into the story later on, because Fifth Group was one room over planning their uh, UW campaign, and they had no contact with any helicopter people. So they didn't understand, you know, the limitations with the Hindu Kush and the weather, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which came into play later on. But, you know, here I am down at... Uh, at uh, Tampa planning what we call personnel recovery. So the idea at this Mm -hmm. point, there is no special operations fight that we know of at this time. It's all conventional bombing. And if, if an air crew goes down, our responsibility would be to go rescue them with air force PJs. And, uh, there was a big fight between us and second battalion with our third battalion, because there was an um, an exercise in Egypt, I think, maybe Bright Star or something like that, uh, that was going on, and we wanted to maintain the image that we could, part, you know, do our exercises with our partners, that commitment, and fight a war. So the argument was, you know, does second battalion go or third battalion? And the difference is airframes. The second battalion has MH-47 Echoes, which is a has a terrain following radar and some other. Uh, interesting equipment. And the 47 Delta that they had was an older version that had a weather radar, but no terrain following radar, which uh, had they been selected for our mission, guts or not, there's no way they could have completed it because we had to use the radar to do our business. So we're down there. It's considered so secret. I can't call back (laughs) on the, you know, the, it was a Stu three at the time. It wasn't a high enough classification and we didn't have the red lines, at the company back then. Uh, so all I could do is call back in the zipper and say, um, you know, you remember spies like us, you know, uh, that area might be where you want to, you know, focus, you know, with the Dushan Bay, you know, and, uh, they got the, they got the message. And, you know, a couple of days later, you know, I went up there and, uh, I didn't even have maps on my laptop of that part of the country. Um, I had to get a, 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 CD, a stack of CDs from the imagery guy there. It was NEMA back then before it was NGA. And, uh, I had to load them on the computer myself, something I would never done. And, uh, it, you know, it was an unclassified hard drive. And now it's classified because it's got all this other stuff on it, but, which ultimately is not a big deal, but the computer guys back at the regiment had a fit, you know, what are you doing? Put yeah. classified stuff. It's like, uh, oh, it's an out- put a red sticker on it. Cause, uh, that's what it is. And so, um, you know the interesting thing with all that is nobody had it had ever really looked at afghanistan you know from our perspective and the there was no computer programs that did aircraft planning at the time you know that that was in its infancy you know beta versions and so we were using paper charts out of the operator's manual and maps and the maps you know the ones on the computer were kind of nice for you know planning coordinates but they didn't help you plan the mission really it was all old-fashioned you know ruler marker uh you know uh, on a paper map you know and a calculator figuring it all out and the variations in altitude and temperature there were just something none of us had seen we couldn't believe you know because in a chinook in the united states we do exercises with the rangers with delta with you know uh the seals and it would be like well how many how many guys can you carry? Uh, you know, 70. Well, Okay, we don't have 70 guys, but you can carry everybody we do have, you know, and a pickup truck and a motorcycle, right? And, and then you got to take off and somebody will run out and say, wait, you got room for one more? And we go, yep, get on. And you could do it, right? Without even really thinking about it. And then you get to Afghanistan and instead of 50 guys, I'm carrying nine, you know. And that's just because of the altitude? The altitude, yeah. So, I mean, we're we were upwards of uh, 20,000 feet at times. And the thing is everybody was trained to put whatever they want on a Chinook. So when, you know, my very first mission was the horse soldiers ODA five nine five, and it was supposed to be two Chinooks because we would divide the team up. So I would have enough fuel to get in and out. And then there was a, a whole story of how my Chinook went with the other team leaving me by myself, so I had to take the whole team. I had to air refuel both in and out of Afghanistan, which was something we always just in general theory didn't want to do. You know, you, air refueling has its own issues and you you always planning for success. And air refueling has some, some issues that, you know, can take things out of your control. So we tried not to do that. But once I had to do that, I went to the team leader and I said, hey, look, you can weigh – 9,600 pounds. I think it was the weight. And he's like, 9,600 pounds. That's like my guys in, in rucksacks. I'm like, well, that's what you got. Right. So they, um, we put some air force pallets on some aircraft scales, you know, and, uh, the team got on it with whatever they were going to bring. And then we would look at the scales and say, yeah, you're, you're 500 pounds overweight, lose something. And they'd be pissed, you know, and they'd throw, throw a couple of, you know, ammo cans off. Oh, now you got 300 pounds to go, you know, and we got them down to the exact weight, which turned out to be the thing we needed to do because the terrain following radar is based on performance of the engines and the aircraft weight, and the ambient conditions. And it, it does all that computations for you. And if you're heavier than you're supposed to be, the aircraft will not work. I mean, it, it'll function, but it, you won't survive.
1: Right. Um, okay. So the initial invasion of Afghanistan, I I guess. And I don't know how long you're actually there for. And and, I mean, you know, you get through uh, October of 2001, all the way through December of 2001 and Tora Bora and everything else, uh, which is a a story I do want to get to. But after the initial invasion, before we get through to Tora Bora, did you think much like Desert Storm, this was just going to tail off and you were going to head back and be done?
0: Oh, yeah. And to the point where, so I said I had uh, ODA 595. Mm-hmm. Well, because I had left the company, the guy that took my place, uh, we'll call him Arlo, uh, he, uh, he gets the first mission, which is actually ODA 555 or a triple, triple nickel, nickel right? Yeah. They're going to go into the Hindu Kush, the Panjshir with uh, Fahim Khan. And what none of us knew is that 595 was actually the main effort. But the first guys to go in, a political decision was Fahim had to get his team first, so he gets triple nickel. And those guys, two nights in a row, had to turn around because of weather. And I'm mad because now my mission has to roll the next day because Fahim says he'll attack Dostum if he gets his SF guys first. So Arlo comes back, he's white as a sheet because they, you know, had to turn around the mountains in horrible weather. Couldn't, you know, they almost died, and I'm calling him, you know a female body part because you know, he doesn't do it. Right. And he's, he's visibly shaken. So the next night he comes back and I should have been compassionate. And I was I was mad because now I had to roll again. And I was convinced that once his guys got in, the priority would be turned off and we'd just all fold up and go home. And uh, what I didn't know was that the next day and we were shoving each other. Like I'm, I'm calling him, you know, name, names? Quest, I'm questioning his manhood. <laughs> And we're shoving each other. And, you know, Arlo's a big guy. He, he'd have crushed me if he actually wanted to. But I was so mad, I didn't care. And um, the next day, Donald Rumsfeld calls the planning area while we're all asleep and says, You get those teams in, both of them, tonight, period, and hangs up the phone. So we get
1: up. We Wait, who t- who took that call? Yep. Yeah, who, who actually answered that so, phone? There was a major. Uh, he doesn't want me to use his name. No, I wouldn't either. But um, right. I mean, you
0: when, know, So he's alone. He's the day guy. Right. He's the battle captain, if you will. He's a major. And he answers the phone and he says it went like this. A woman on the other end said, um, please hold for the secretary. And he's like, what secretary? You know, you know, this is Donald Rumsfeld. Who am I talking to? This is Major H. He's a Utah Mulholland to get those teams in tonight. You know, and he had some yeah. other choice words and hung up the phone. So now when I come in, I'm expecting yeah. a leisurely day because my mission's planned, you know, and they go, uh, nope, we're launching everything tonight. Al, you got to give up your your other Chinook. i like, ah. Oh. So now I got to bust from my ass, you know, planning how to do this with one aircraft now. So they gave me two armed Blackhawks, DAPs, uh, direct action penetrators, right? They were supposed to be my wingmen. Even though we knew they wouldn't be able to go all the way, we figured they'd go most of the way. And back then there was nothing overhead. You know, now you go on target and there's a stack, you know, AC-130, a couple mm-hmm. of UAVs, you know, F-18s, F-15s. And back then there was nothing. You know, you might have a, a B-52 or B-1 over the country, but they weren't there for you. And uh, so we, we briefed and launched. And uh, the only caveat I was given was you have to get to dose them 30 minutes after Fahim gets his guys. You can't get there any sooner. It has to be obvious to Fahim he got his guys first,
1: just to say he got is Americans. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's yeah. It's not even.
0: And it, and it went from there. Oh. You know, it was that set the tone because when I took off, the weather forecast was for decent weather. But, you know, that was based on computer models from the Soviet Union that really were bullshit. And uh, the first thing we encountered when we crossed the border was a sandstorm that was so bad that you couldn't see past the refueling probe. And my dApps, didn't have the train falling radar and they sucked in really tight. Right. And with their MVGs, they could see the heat from my engines and they knew that if the engine got brighter, I was climbing. If it got, you know, dimmer, then I was descending and they would match that as near as they could only seeing the glow of the engines. I mean, That's impressive. It, guts will only, guts will only get you so far, you know, if you hit a mountain. And so they eventually had to turn around because they just, they couldn't go any further. So I figured once again, ah, here we go. We're going to turn around. You know, Arlo had to turn around two in a row and the current the battalion commander decided to be my air mission commander. So he's riding in the jump seat, which is like about a foot behind me in between the two pilots. And he says, uh, Al, what do you think? And I said, sir, I I said, we just TF. And he's like, do it. I'm like, wow. You know, this this used to be a general officer uh, approval to do this. So I we just we activated it. We ran with it. And uh, when you say TF for the people listening, TF is what? Terrain following radar. Okay. So you'll hear it referred to as TFTA, Terrain Following, Terrain Avoidance. And it's a it's a computer-generated cue based on a radar that sees the, the terrain in front of you. Right, and just feel, It's sort
1: of feeling what's below you or to the side of you, and you're yep. using that as your guide for where you're going.
0: Yep, and you can't see out the window. You're playing a little video game. And this is something that in training, you know, we had practiced only while being able to see out the window, right? They wouldn't let us do it in the clouds because it was too dangerous. Because what would happen is the damn thing would reboot on its own for no reason. And it was, you know, think of your iPhone, right. Or your, your cell phone. Sometimes it just locks up on you and you're like, ah, damn it. You got to reset it. Now imagine it's an aircraft and you got to <laughs> climb like your life depends on it. Cause it does, you know, and uh, we had that happen to us on that very first mission.
1: That's crazy. Um, yeah. all right. So we moved to December of 2001 and okay. Tora Bora is there. And this is the closest we had gotten to catching bin Laden, yeah. um, prior to actually getting bin Laden 10 years later. Um, and it's frustrating because, you you know, you mentioned before about uh, the Afghans had to get their guys, and, and it's been detailed many times over as to why he was allowed to escape. Part of it was Afghan proxies were a big part of, for whatever reason, we couldn't get Osama bin Laden. We had to make sure that the Afghans were the ones who caught Osama bin Laden. But nonetheless, uh, uh, 10 years later so when you're you're getting in this toro mission, you realize uh, i mean I should phrase it this way. do you realize the scope about how much tonnage of bombs we're about to drop on the side of a mountain like no. like or, or, how does this whole thing unfold and again, you're doing Chinook, so it's a little bit different, but you know how does this whole thing unfold, and can you kind of paint the picture what everybody's doing?
0: yeah, so the way that you know JsOC and USASOC are designed is essentially, especially with the air elements you go to a mission and you go home, right? Mm -hmm. You're not equipped or manned to stay for prolonged periods of time, right? It's just not how it was envisioned. So we get there, we do, I don't know, 20, 30 infills and a bunch of resupplies of a bunch of ODAs. And then we come up on uh, Thanksgiving, you know, and we're thinking we're going to go home in about two weeks and uh, we're already talking about redeployment and uh, we just have to move the last of the SF teams to C-130 capable strips and we can leave. That's what we've been told. And then um, the the operations officer comes in and says, hey, we need to send two Chinooks to Bagram. And we got this thing called this Tora Bora campaign. We think we got bin Laden. So Arlo and uh, his guest, once again, because he's the company SIP, he gets to go and I'm a little jealous, but he gets down there and the bombing campaign begins in earnest. And, you know, they're running the, the Delta guys down, you know, into the Toro Bore area and the cave complexes, and they're you know doing their thing. Except they went down with a three-day ruck, right, a backpack good enough for three days, right, you know, para, change of underwear, socks, that kind of thing. And after a couple of days, they realized they need resupply, and they didn't go down equipped for that. So they asked my team to go down, and we took their place better supplied, better, better, better provisioned. So we go down there. My first flight into the Tora Bora Valley there, uh, the mountains at night were glowing under my night vision goggles. That's how you talk know, about all the bombs being dropped. The rocks and the foliage were so hot. You know, the only thing I've seen even close to that is um, out west here in America. You know, when they have the wildfires, if you fly at night with night vision goggles, you see the glow of where the fire has burned over or where where it's going. That's what the Torobora Mountains look like. And it was really something.
1: Yeah. Um, do you feel like as it's unfolding that you guys might actually have a shot at getting him? Yeah. Yeah, we did. I mean, was I mean, it he just was just so like, how could anybody survive this?
0: Yeah. And he was on, uh, he was on ICOM, mm-hmm. right. the little walkie talkies, you know, okay. and, uh, you know, it's funny cause I was, uh, I flew in, uh, to the, to the headquarters where we would bring everybody in, uh, a reporter from ABC, John McQuethy. He's, he died in some kind of skiing accident, I guess, a couple of years later, but, he's quiet the whole time. It's pitch dark, you know, it's zero loom and I'm flying along the military crest of the mountains. So I'm, you know, a couple thousand feet above the valley, but I'm up against the mountains. And he says, Hey, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He goes, why aren't you flying low and fast in the valley? I said, where do you think the bad guys are? And on the news, they're talking about the 160th is flying low and fast in the valley. So instead I'm up on the military crest where if somebody points a, a heat seeking missile at me, there's a little bit of ground clutter. It might you know, uh, interfere a little bit with the secret headlock and on. And if somebody does, all I have to do is ease back on the, on the stick without changing power. So I'm not changing a heat setting and I can just sort of glide up and over on the other side. And whether that's machine gun, fire, RPGs, or, or man pads, it's very simple. And then when I get where I'm going, I'll come down and they can't hear me up here. Or if they do the noise is bouncing around the Valley, you know, uh, Rick Shan off. And he's like, wow, we never thought of that. Like, That's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. So we went in and, uh, you know, a lot of the time we did
1: that, you know, fly up on the military crest, you know, and then drop down. When it's all said and done and you don't get bin Laden, are you guys feeling any frustration or is it like, Hey, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll eventually find him here. We'll eventually get him. I mean, nobody knew at that point in time it was going to take another 10 years no, to get it, him. It, it was, as a matter of fact, um, So when they did the ceasefire, Mm -hmm. right, so he no longer, he was injured, we believe. Right. He was on ICOM telling people that he was hurt, he was injured. And 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 then it stops, right, because we're still bombing him. And CENTCOM decided, at least the
0: way it was portrayed to us, is they decided that we got him. We don't no longer have to drop any bombs and we'll go, you know, go find his SSE, we'll go find his body. So we started a cave complex search and things like that. The whole time we're thinking we're going to get him. You know, we don't think he's dead. We, We think... He's just off the radio, which turned out to be the case. And for years, you never wanted to leave Afghanistan, like as a flight lead, right? So the, the flight lead position is very important in the 160. You you are the leader, the, the warrant officer leader that plans, briefs, executes, and navigates to the mission. You know, the commander gives you some guidance and commander's intent, and the warrant officers do it. And the flight lead is that position that does it. And I was one of like, you know, six or eight guys. And so the chances of me being one of the guys to get bin Laden was great. I did several missions where we thought we had them and they, you know, dry hole or it was somebody else. But when you left, you'd be like, all right, Al, your replacement's coming in. It's like, ah, you know, we, we think bin Laden's here or here. And it was always just over the border in Pakistan. So he was kind of where we were looking the whole time. I mean, not the specific building, but certainly, you know, one or two areas. Uh, that we had focused on the whole time. And you always thought that the guy that replaced you was going to get him right? You know, right. for years. And I stayed a couple of times uh, when somebody had a delay. One guy had, his wife had a baby and he's like, how hey, can you stay, you know, a couple of weeks? I said, tell you what, I'll, I'll give me two months. I'll take two months for you. Right. Cause I thought we were going right. to get him. And of yeah. course my wife is saying it's okay. But what I don't realize is that it's taken a toll. That uh, Well, that's
1: what I, that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So at this point in time, when you get through the end of the evasion into 2002, you've been in for how many years now? Well, uh, 21 or 22, okay. I guess. So at no point in time though, did you ever think that you were done? Like there was not an inkling of, you talked about that. I had more assault in me. Did you, you like, did you feel at any point in time that your assault guy, that that part of you was waning? Not at that time.
0: No, it was a couple of years actually,
1: uh, before that started to take effect. All right. Um, And you mentioned everything that's going on at home. I mean, are are your kids, are you able to talk to them at least at that point in time? Like, are are you able to have conversations? Do they give you any hint? Hey, mom's not doing well. Something's going on.
0: No, there's a whole dynamic there that people who live with alcoholics uh, are the only ones that could probably understand or opioid addictions in that. So what happened was I got shot down in Operation Anaconda. The news reported two Chinooks down, eight people dead. And, you know, I'm the flight leader of a team of two Chinooks with eight crew members. And there's a 50% chance that's my team in my wife's view, right? And, and I did have an opportunity when I got rescued as in Gardez. Uh, this agency guys gave me a, an opportunity to use my, their cell phone, their sat phone, to call my wife. They said, hey, you might want to call your wife and tell her you're okay. It's about to hit the news. I'm like, I can't. If, if I do that, they'll know who's dead. You know, and for the greater good, you know, at my wife's sacrifice emotionally, I didn't call to tell her that I was alive. You know, so for a couple of days, or two days at least, she thought I could be the one that was dead. Because you regret that? What's that? Do you regret that? No. No, oh, I-, I couldn't be any other way. Because when I was in Desert Storm, we had a fatality Uh, our commander and SIP ran into an unlit antenna at the end of the conflict and died. And everybody on the aircraft, but the door gunner died. And one of the captains who was a staff guy called his wife and said, Hey, it's not me. He didn't say who it was, but you know, the wives will will figure it out pretty quick. And before they were officially notified the right way, people knew who was, who was dead. And I wasn't going to allow that to happen because I was alive. You know, I, I thought, you know, my wife will understand. She's been in the Army with me all these years. You know, she'll understand that you know, the, the people who died need to be notified the right way. So I probably wouldn't have changed it. Although I say that, I came up with a procedure after that. I call it sick days. So if something happens that will make the news, you know, me, my sons, my my now stepson, who's an infantryman at, at Campbell – uh, have a code word, would just say, Hey, I used a sick day, which means you're going to see some in the news. It wasn't me. I'm fine. And, uh, so that developed from there and that actually worked actually, you know, funny thing. My stepson calls, he's in Afghanistan uh, a couple of years ago and he calls home, he gets my wife and he says, Hey mom, uh, used a sick day. Gotta go. Bye. And she talks to me. She's like, Oh my God, he's sick. Did, did he see a doctor? You know, she's all upset. I'm like, sick day. I said, turn on the news real quick, right? And it was a big attack. And he was attached to a, an ODA uh, as a regular instrument. And uh, I'm like, he was there, but he's okay. And she says, well, how do you know? I said, because he used a sick day. You know? I said, I don't explain That's this great. to you. This is a, our That's code great. word. So I might have done something like that, but I, mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't have done it. But because I didn't do that, she never forgave me. And, um, from there on out, you know, things just went slowly downhill emotionally for her. But she would tell the kids, you can't tell dad I'm having problems. And the neighbors and the other wives, nobody told me what was going on. To. It took a while for me to kind of figure out, you know. And then some of it was my own desire to keep going, but, you know. It's, it's So do you take re- any responsibility for that? Do you feel any yes. guilt for it? Yes. Yes, I do. Because, you know, you ever – you ever asked for something you knew wasn't right, like you wanted something and, you know, your mother, your friend, your girlfriend, whatever, your wife, you know, they don't want you to do it, but you you really want them to let you do it. And in this case, you know, she would tell me if um, if you don't stay, if you quit, that means I'm the one that made that happen. I will be a failure. And that's a whole long story in itself. Right. And I would kind of was being manipulated. You know, essentially I was an enabler, you know, which, you know, I kind of knew it was happening. I didn't learn about that stuff until much later. But, yeah, I mean, uh, it was tough. I kind of knew stuff was going on, but I didn't think it was that bad. And we always thought we're going to get bin Laden next month. It's all over and we're done, you know. Or, you know, the other side of that is um, I didn't take care of myself in a lot of ways. You know, maybe it was the dentist or You know, a physic my back, you know, I have back problems because I honestly, there was a couple of years where I didn't expect to live, live. you know, I didn't expect to survive. You know, we were doing some things with the aircraft and with the customers that, you know, we, the risk was very, very high, you know, based on the target sets. And so I kind of, you know, made sure I spent, when I was home, quality time with the kids and my wife. And try to make up for that. So if, if I didn't survive, there would be these memories that we made, you know, and, uh, you know, even it came to like, you know, running up the bills, you know, credit card bills. It's like, hey, we're going to go to Disney World. Oh, we can't really afford it. Sure we can, you know, and just throw it on the credit and know that if something, you know, we'll pay it off if I live. And if not, well, you'll we'll get pay it off if
1: I'm dead. Yeah, we'll pay it off either way. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and that's kind of a morbid I way know. of looking no, at it. It's what it was. No, I,
1: I, you have to be. You have to come to grips with your own mortality if you're going to survive combat. You, there's just no. There's no other way. You, you'll drive yourself insane. The, the anxiety and the nerves of not understanding what death is and how it's going to impact you, um, and then foregoing your own existence or at least your own safety for certain things um, is is a, an inherent part of the the job in combat. Yeah,
0: there was a. There's a. There's a Latin saying, uh, "Memento mori." Remember your mortality. Mm-hmm. And the idea is live life because you're going to die. You know, it's a no matter of when. And there are plenty of times, you know, when we were chasing Bo Bergdahl, I, uh, I have a favorite uh, chapter in the, in, the, in the book there where I talk about uh, going after him and uh, the ground force, uh, the command master chief comes to me is the guy's out of a damn neck. And he's like, Al, we got to go right to the door. You have to go to the door. This is not kill capture. This hostage rescue. We got to get to the door. I'm like, Okay. And we look at the imagery. It looks like there's a place to land. And uh, as we walk out the door, the imagery guy comes up. He says, sir, I've, I've reevaluated your landing area. It's too steep. You can't land there. It's like 20, 30 degree slope. I'm like, well, I think that's where they want to go. Right. So I, I talked to the master chief. I'm like, hey, chief, I, I can't put you there. I got to put you about, you know, 500 meters away. And he's like, he'll be dead. If you do that, he'll be dead before we get to the door. Right. So I'm like, all right, uh, I'll think of something, right? So we're the whole way, I'm like thinking, what are we going to do? And we round we round this corner on a ridge line, and the, a laser comes down from the ISR platform. And you can see where I'm supposed to land, and it is the side of a hill. There's no way I'm landing on it. And uh, the other pilot's flying. I say, hey, give me the controls. I'm going to do this landing, you know, set the brakes. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? That's too steep. And I said, you guys ever hear of Sante? And someone goes, yeah, wait wait a minute, isn't that where they intentionally crashed a helicopter in a POW compound or do a rescue? I said, yep, you got the right idea. Hang on. And uh, we— one of the best landings of my life was to the side of this hill. Uh, Didn't damage anything, but I was ready for the aircraft to have a hard landing and uh, stay on the objective while the ground force rescued him. Uh, Turned out to be a dry hole. His socks were there and his underwear, but Hmm. he was not. Uh, but that's the kind of thing me and guys like me, my peers, were willing to do. I,
1: I hate to go back, but I, I did want to talk more a little bit about the shoot down because you know that experience preceding everything you had to is sort of the catalyst for some of that thought process. Well, look, I almost died already, so what's the point of you know saying, "Oh, this is too risky"? Now, I mean, I've already you know like th- those those things are compounding to each other. Can you talk about that and how exactly yeah. it happened?
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's a it's a long story, but you know we end up on top of uh, a mountain called Tarkagar.
1: okay Okay. Yes. The rules of engagement very familiar.
0: Had changed uh, the day before there was a friendly fire incident. A uh, AC-130 killed uh, a war officer named Harriman, who was the lead element of the the uh, the main effort for Operation Anaconda. He was the the hammer to the anvil, if you will. And uh, when he got killed, it changed the whole dynamic of the battlefield because the Afghans ran away going, wow, if the Americans can get smoked like that, you know, what's going to happen to us? So they changed the rules of who you could shoot and when. And uh, MH-47 is equipped with a 7.62 minigun, right? It's an it's a electric Gatling gun. Shoots about 4,000 rounds a minute, depending on the, the version. And uh, we have some delays, some complications, but the long and short of it is we end up at the top of the hill. A guy shoots an RPG from, you know, I don't know, 50 meters away, maybe closer, maybe 25. And he hits the aircraft in just such a way, it's it's a magic bullet. It takes out three normally redundant hydraulic systems, all three electrical systems, which drive the miniguns. Wow. So now we have no defense, and the team is still on board. So, I, like, you know, the aircraft will still fly without these features. It just doesn't fly well, right? And uh, there's big chunks taken out of the rotor blade, which we find out later on. There's no oil in the transmissions. You know, the gears are all shot up, but it's flyable. You know, Boeing makes a good product. But as we take off, Neil Roberts gets uh, shot in the leg and he falls out of the aircraft from about 10 to 12 feet onto uh, probably hip, deep snow. So he survives the fall. And the door gunner that was in the back uh, tried to grab him as he, but he got pulled out of the aircraft with him. So it wasn't like, you know, Sylvester Stallone grabbing on like, hang on, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> no. He got sucked right out with him, right? The difference is he had a tether, you know, his gunner harness, and was hanging about five feet beneath the uh, back of the aircraft. The uh, So now I'm diving down the mountain because I think I've lost an engine, and I have no cockpit displays to tell me otherwise, and I'm, I'm going with sound. And as I'm diving down the hill, had he not got pulled in by another gunner, he'd have been killed, you know, either by trees or impact on the bottom. And I don't know he's hanging out because we can't, none of us can talk. And uh, finally they get some communications back and um, they tell me a guy fell out. Like a guy fell out. You get, we got to do something. I'm like, all right, we'll go back and get him. Right. So we're the aircraft is severely disabled and we're flying around and I can look down and I can see the entire battle of uh, Anaconda unfolding at a terrain feature called the whale, right. Objective Remington. So I can watch all that as I turn inbound, and then the controls freeze. I cannot move the control, the flight controls at all, and uh, without hydraulics, they cannot be moved, no matter what. So imagine you're driving a car and somebody locks the steering wheel; you can't move. You're going wherever that thing's pointed. And um, I said, "Guys, I'm sorry. Uh, we're done." I'm like, "Whoa, what's, what's going on? I, I got no hydraulics. I, I can't move the controls." So my co-pilot gets on the controls. He tries to move them. You know, you never know. It's you know, redundant systems. It doesn't move. And then all of a sudden, uh, the controls come back. Like all of a sudden, my hand moves, right? And the crew chief in the back opened up a can of oil and poured it into a little reservoir. It's like a little funnel in the back. And he's got a little tiny hand, you know, handle. He pumps it. And he pumped in a quart of hydraulic fluid. And all of a sudden, I had controls again. And I'm like, all right. We'll turn back inbound again. Not, we'll did you know he turn. did that at the time? No. I just knew the controls came back. And uh, oh, so I'm like, all right, wow. we got control again. So we go back in. Are you thinking it's people- a miracle? You're like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I just made peace with my own death, you know, and apologized to the guys for getting them killed. Um, you know, because none of us – nobody had survived a dual hydraulic failure in a Chinook. You know, wow. uh, it's just – it's not possible. But in this case – the gunner did that. And so we turned back inbound with no, no guns, right? Actually, we do have one M60 machine gun in the right rear. And he's actually, so this guy, right, who, he, they have a nickname for him. He's kind of a Forrest Gump kind of character, you know, in all the sense. Uh, but, man, he came through. He pulled up the crew chief that fell out. In the meantime, he, he returned fire with the M60 as we turn. And then he put the fluid in. And then he went back to returning fire. From the one gun that was not electric. And then, so as we turn inbound, approximately 50 seconds later, five zero, the controls lock up again. I'm like, ah, sorry guys. And now we're headed right to the mountain. We're going to crash on the hill and there's no way to survive this. And uh, the controls come back. So it turns out what was happening was he had three cans of fluid. And each can lasted about 50 seconds, right, because the holes in the hydraulics were on the return side. So every time I moved the controls, uh, it pumped out fluid. So now I realize there's no way we're going to get on the ground with him. So instead, I banked to the left, started descent, and I'm hoping to land among friendly forces in Objective Remington,
1: which is below us. How did he know to add hydraulic fluid if you couldn't talk to him? Well, by then he could talk. Okay, so the gotcha. guys up front, the the
0: inability to talk turned out to be the RPG blast that came through the aircraft, just uh, knocked them silly. You know, I mean, it was a big ball of flame in the back, and the guys were kind of like you know a cartoon with the stars going in their head and blah blah blah. You know, and then when they got
1: their senses, they're like, all right, we're we're here. You know, and then we could we could communicate. Gotcha. Okay, so you make the decision to try to land in hopefully friendly forces. What happens?
0: Right. So now I'm. I've, I realized that we're probably going to lose hydraulics again and I won't be able to move the controls. So what I do is I, I set the aircraft at a speed and rate of descent that I believe that if I can't move the controls, we might survive if we don't hit something like an object, like a tree or something. I'm hoping for, you know, just that that happens. In the meantime, I'm coming down. I realize I cannot make it to friendly forces without increasing the rate of descent, which once again, if the controls stop, I'm going to crash and a big fireball so I leave it where it is and as we come in uh, maybe the last 50 feet of landing the ground comes into view and I can see that it's rolling terrain there's no foliage on it except a little bit of grass and some dirt and the controls freeze up for the final time so I can't move the cyclic stick which is between your legs and that's what gives you directional control and the aircraft started a slide uncommanded to the right. So now I know what's going to happen is it's going to slide into the hill to my right. We're going to roll over. We're going to explode and we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. But there's a saying in aviation, never quit flying the aircraft. So I can't move that control, but I was able to push on the right pedal. So the right pedal made the nose turn like that. And I pointed now in the direction of the descent. So now if we hit the terrain, at least I'm going to hit it straight on. I won't roll. And I got one more push and then I can't move the pedals. So I had basically one movement in each control axis. And then I lowered the power for that last 10 feet. And we hit the ground at about a 20 degree upslope, 15 degrees left side uh, low. And, you know, big cloud of dust all without any of the um, the, the toys, if you will, that that help you do that. This is all based on my experience at NTC and things that I used to play around with. And I remember thinking – we're alive,
1: <laughs> right? And I'm like, we we used to do this thing. By the like way, you commuter. can just say, you can say your, your genuine reaction out loud. It's okay. Uh, I was like, fuck, we're alive.
0: And <laughs> so what was interesting is we had been training the previous year, like in 2000, uh, up into 2001, we were doing all these. Our commander was an ex-Delta guy that went to flight school. And he loved doing shoot down scenarios and putting us in the woods and, you know, doing you know, what happens when you get down. Right. Cause everybody talks about it. He made us do it. You know, we'd go out, you know, in the middle of the night, shut down the aircraft. He said, all right, shut down. Here's the coordinates you got to go to do it. And then he'd walk along with us and kind of coach us on how Delta force guys would do it. You know, here's right. what we would do, you know? Okay. But anyway, we, so we hit the ground. I realized we're alive. You know, I pulled the engine condition levers to stop my co-pilot jams on the rotor brake to stop. The rotors and I go, another fucking Garst game. Ah, damn. I used his name, it's Gorst. Okay, you mm-hmm. can change that, that would be great. Yep. Um But then we did the the actions that he had essentially helped us hone. You know, I jettison my door, I got out, we got a head count. I still have the seals on board, minus one. And uh then we come up with a couple of different plans uh to bring them back to the top of the mountain. Uh my wingman comes back to get us about forty, forty-five minutes later. Uh takes us back to Gardez, drops us off, reconfigures, them, and then takes them in, and that's where Britt Slavinsky and uh, Chapman get the Medal of Honor.
1: Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um and so when Chapman gets it. That was Chapman got it during Robert's Ridge, no? So that's Robert's Ridge. Okay. Tachy- so that, Gr- that is the battle attacker guard then. Yeah. Yeah. Um <clears throat> which Coincidentally enough, just a side note, that sort of became the impetus for this whole show uh, that began five years ago, because I wondered why how nobody knew that story. And to me, that was the most amazing thing. Uh, we, we've had American Sniper and Lone Survivor and all this. Why is the Battle of Gar never been a movie? Why doesn't everybody know about that whole thing and how it unfolded and the different layers to it? And, you know, 19 Rangers stuck on a mountain top for 20 hours outnumbered by the Taliban by about 300, uh, you know several attempts to get a chopper up that high again without crashing it uh it's rangers climbing up the side of the mountain that took them about eight hours to do to climb up the side of the mountain to finally get up there uh right. all the while while well, you got guys bleeding and dying out and trying to save them and uh a ranger captain who just fought his ass off for 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 20 Yeah, you could,
0: you could do a couple of a couple of podcasts on that whole whole yeah. thing i've 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 been part of some discussions in, in, um, with some Rangers and some SEALs and and 160th guys and and other government agencies that have provided me information that I did not have at the time. And it's like, wow, that was all going on, you know, and, you know, the whole fog of war. And then I had to write down, uh, a friend of mine was trying to figure out, you know, why the confusion between razor one, razor two, three, four, like that kind of thing. Like there were seven razors. And, uh, why was razor one shot down? I thought you were the lead. And it's like, yeah, it was the lead of my two, two-aircraft element, Razor 3 and 4, and Razor 1 and 2 with the QRF. You now, I was the HVT aircraft. I was supposed to be, we thought Zauhari and um, Bin Laden were present. So my job when Anaconda kicked off was if one of those two high-value targets showed up, I, I was the one that was going to take them down with the SEALs. Yeah. And when it became obvious that they weren't there, they repurposed, retasked my SEALs and had me come down and put them in to call for fire on top of uh, Gar, later named Robert Ridge. So I had to write up a thing called Razors for Dummies because it talked about how, you know, all the aircraft switches and why they were trying to put refuel tanks on one and then didn't need to anymore. And I mean, it's a very complex uh, situation. It was hard to actually write down because it, it was so uh, fluid. You know, if you-
1: yeah. Uh, and you go from that um, to years later, you talk about chasing Bo Bergdahl. Which yeah. is the complete antithesis of that mission, right? Um, you're trying to save a guy who's lost there. Now you're chasing a guy who ran away, um, right. which. So can I, I say go ahead.
0: So right, I work for the county, right? I work for the county mm-hmm. executive. He's the chief elected official. And when he introduces me, he always goes on to say, oh, this is Alan Mack, 36 Ar- years army, special operations pilot, got shot down in Anaconda. And then he, he goes on and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Yes. I was shot down in Anaconda. You know, one of the things that, that I didn't say about Anaconda was up until that time, that's about seven months in country. And I'd had a lot of stuff shot at me. And I mean, a lot of stuff, 23 millimeter RPGs, man pads. I had two man pads fired at me. And, uh, maybe it was a little, uh, arrogant to think that, you know, if the enemy shot at me, that it would just, you know, destroy me or whatever. And in this case, you know, a short-range RPG hit just the right spot that even when uh, – we had engineers come up from um, Fort Pickett, I think it is, and uh, or Picatinny or whatever it is. You know, they do all the armament, and they looked at it, and they said, this aircraft should not have been disabled. You know, there's no way with three different electrical systems and stuff, and they looked, and there was – the RPG did damage in some places. Uh, A 14.5 Dishka did damage, like hit the other electrical cables. It's like, what is the luck of this happening, you know? And so anyway, I I learned from this arrogance, you know, uh, that I, you know, was, you know, going to be okay no matter what and find out that no, maybe not. And uh, what I learned from it was maybe a little tactical patience, a little imagination. And I'm the guy of... All the flight leads in the 160th, in the particularly in the Chinook community, I'd like to think I had the most imagination to doing things in a way to be what I call predictably unpredictable. So you knew if you were on my team, oh, Al's coming to be the flight lead this uh, rotation. Everybody regretted it at first. Oh, my God, Al's coming because we're going to do everything the hard way. We're going to fly extra far to get around early warning networks. We're going to uh, capitalize on bad weather so people can't see us. We're going to do it the hard way, you know. And uh, in doing so, I was never successfully engaged again without intending for it to happen. So, those are my, you know, my lesson learned. There was that. And so, as I went through my the rest of my career, uh, I used that whether I was fighting with the you know the battalion commander or the ground force commander uh, or some other element, you know, I stuck my heels in and was like, I'm not giving in. This. this is how we're doing it. And I got my way almost every time, you know, when I didn't, uh, there were people who got hurt and I I took that to heart, you know, and, you know, I fought with some people very senior to me, um, risking really, I didn't think about it at the time, you know, (laughs) but I really risked a lot of my career and and reputation in, in doing the choices that I made. But they were all
1: based on, you know, the Anaconda, really. Sure. So going after Bo Bergdahl uh, as an experience, you know, again, like I said, early in your career, you're chasing bin Laden. You're trying to get a bad guy, um, you know, and then you're trying to get guys who are stuck. And now it's just like you're going after this guy who's generally a deserter at this point. Yeah. Do you, do you look at the mission any differently? I mean, I feel like it's hard not to.
0: No, I, you know, it was interesting because the, the assault force viewed him as a, a deserter. Mm-hmm. Uh I didn't categorize him that way. I categorized him as a U.S. soldier because one of the things that the 160th members are very aware of is many of our tactical missions have national strategic implication. So my opinion was you got to bring him home. You, this is going to be a bigger deal if we don't get him. You know, he needs to come back dead or alive, but he's got to come back. And, you know, I I rescued hostages in Iraq earlier. You know, I, I went through a lot of trouble in, in red wings to bring uh Luttrell and then the fallen home mm-hmm. and Bergdahl. You know, I think that poor guy's he's an idiot. You know, when you look at what, what apparently transpired to get him to walk off that base, but I wasn't going to let him, you know, die at the hands of the Taliban.
1: If I could help it, he was a U.S. soldier, moron or not. It's fair. Um, uh, you're a better person than me. Uh, I, it's because as you just talked about, like you weren't going to allow unnecessary risk to take place because that was your training. Part of me would have felt like this is an unnecessary risk. Well,
0: it's risk versus reward. Right. It's not that and, I wouldn't do any risky. It's that I try to find a creative way
1: to, you know, get around. And problems. well, I 100 percent agree about political implications and everything. But, you know, I just wish that would be a two way street. Right. Because. Mm. When you're getting shot at, nobody gives a shit about politics. That's never part of the equation. No one mm-hmm. is trying to win a battle for some political invocation. You're trying to win a battle to stay alive because yes. you're in combat and that's what's supposed to happen. We don't care what decision makers make in DC, do in D.C. and everything else. Um, but when decision makers make policy decisions based off of what we're able to do and what we're not able to do uh, or use us to be able to make policy decisions, that's a one-way street that, that doesn't fly with me. Um, pun intended, I guess, cause I'm talking to a pilot. Yeah. Um, but again, as somebody on the ground, I, I, you know, sometimes you don't have to make that, that distinguishment, I guess, you know, uh, it was, I was never asked tasked with going to get somebody who ran away. So I, I never had to face that, but I was just kind of curious your thoughts.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a, a series of complex emotions, you know, and they, they, they do morph over time. It's kind of an oversimplification the way I describe it. You know, because, uh, you know, we were doing, well, I mean, we just did stuff, you know, in Iraq, there was a place called Taji Triangle, right, where no airplanes were allowed to fly or helicopters because there was a man pad threat. Well, by doing that, creating a geographic triangle where nobody could fly, it channelized the aircraft further into a place where they could get shot down easier instead of keeping the area open. And we would go in at night with the intention of disrupting and destroying that network. And we did it, you know, but, you know, we'd fly into this area that people, you know, my conventional peers said, why are you going in there? You get shot down. It's like, no, I'm going in there. So you won't get shot down.
1: You know, maybe it's along the, the line of the PJs, you know, that others may live, you know, kind of thing. Right. I, and maybe right. Um, you mentioned Lone Survivor in the Kunar Valley. What was your association with that? How, how did you fit into that whole mission?
0: Yeah, so Red Wings was a, was a right. Marine Corps mission, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they were going to use the siege of sort of seals to do a uh, Recon. r- special reconnaissance right. yep. of the area to try to find out, you know, a pattern of life and pin down where Ahmad Shah would be for the assault. And I can't remember how many Chinooks we had, seven or eight Chinooks there. There were two Echo models, which were the, the newer ones, and, and the rest were all Delta models out of Savannah, Georgia, right? These are the older aircraft. They could lift more. Because they didn't have all the special equipment, right? So my aircraft was more capable in getting through weather and terrain, but their aircraft could carry more if they could get where they were going, right? So the plan was that the Delta models would do Red Wings and the Echo models would be the QRF. Well, at that time, we would do QRF for about a week at a time, Quick Reaction Force. And Major Steve Reich and his guys were on that with the Delta models and they were to come off in time to join the big fight for Red Wings. And I would assume QRF. So that morning, you know, that it all happens. I walk into the talk, get my coffee, go sit down next to the Colonel. And everybody is looking at the, the big monitors on the wall. I'm like, what's going on, sir? He's like, Oh, we, we launched the QRF. I'm like, but I'm the QRF today. he's like, Oh, they were already up. It was quicker just to send them. I'm like, and they're familiar with the, the area. Cause really that was their mission. And uh, so I, I watched it and it was kind of uneventful until of course it wasn't. And I watched drinking coffee as
1: uh turbine three, three was shot out of the sky with an RPG. Oh my God. I mean, how, geez, I was going to ask you about that. Like, Oh, how, how do you reconcile that when that's supposed to be your aircraft? That's supposed to be your job. Well, that's one of those things that after the fact, you know,
0: you could do really about two weeks of that, I was a machine. You know, there was no emotion. It was just, you got to succeed. So now I'm the QRF, right? The secondary. So I take the damn neck seals with me and we run to the aircraft. We head to there It's daylight. I'm doing about 150 knots, which is about as fast as the aircraft can do with that kind of weight at those altitudes. And I'm just, once I get my cockpit duties tidied up, I'm quiet. You know, I'm not telling anybody my feelings. I'm just thinking, what are we going to do when we get there? I mean, it's almost like that, uh, the, the Sante thing I was talking about. It's like, I, I know there's no place to land there. That's why they were fast roping. I can't fast rope to the same place. I'll get shot down as well. So now I'm trying to think of how I'm going to, you know, f- you know, is there a way that I can come up the Valley and look for a, a alternate LZ that they can get off, you know, out of the line of fire, but I don't know until I get there. And then, you know, I may be f- six minutes out and I get diverted to Jalalabad, which is a nearby fob. So they say, yeah, go there. We're going to come up with a better plan than you just, you know, throwing guys at the, at the fight. Cause we, we're still kind of deciding what's going on. So we get down there and uh, you know, there's a lot of iterations, a lot of false starts, you know, we, we might go, we, we won't go. And then uh, as it gets dark, the weather rolls in and that whole time frame. Thunderstorms and clouds were a big deal, right? And that's why the Echo models were going to be the, the QRF, because we could get through all that weather and the deltas couldn't. Well, somebody decided that they would just start Red Wings, you know, a day earlier or whatever it was, and they flew down a bunch of Delta models and uh, grabbed my seals, if you will, the guys that were my customers, and they made a run down the valley in near Asadabad, uh, fob down the road they ran into these incredible thunder showers and had to turn around. Mm-hmm. And so there was no they were, no way they were getting, I, I could have got in there, but I don't know where we would have gone. You know, I mean, even in hindsight, I'm not sure where we would have gone. And then, so the following day we came up with a better plan for what we call an offset infill. And we used uh, four Chinooks, each being led by an echo model because we could get them through the weather and then, uh, you know, they could carry more people. You know, I'm carrying... You know, 18 guys, he's carrying, you know, 30, you know, kind of thing. So the idea was to, to just get in there. But I was able to, to lead the guys in for that while they carried the guys. And then, then it was just a constant flow of bringing people in every night. We have a 15, 20-minute window of weather. We'd yeah. get in there. And, you know, if they found a body, we would bring them out, you know. And uh,
1: oh. it was probably the worst flying of my life. And for those who don't know, so what happened after Marcus Luttrell and the other three SEALs who uh, were attacked or were found during the recon mission? Marcus Luttrell, if you've ever seen the movie, you know, he goes to the top of the mountain, makes the the call on the sat phone back, and then they send out a QRF team, uh, and that, that uh, MH-47 Chinook was shot down. It was an RPG that hit the transmission, and in that was Major Stephen Reich, who uh, was the commander of the 160th and Lieutenant Commander Eric Christensen, who was the commander of SEAL Team 10. So uh, whoever was ready and ready to go at that point in time is who they they sent right out the door. Uh, and and I, I don't know. I mean, how much survivor's guilt? I mean, you know, uh, Because I, I say, fortunately, you're not on an aircraft, but in the back of your mind, you're going, that was my job. That should have been.
0: Yeah, job. you know, I, I got to tell you, the, uh, and the question is, you know, would I have done something different? Right. Because of my experiences. Sure. Uh, but I got to tell you, they they recovered some pieces of the aircraft, you know, that we were going to give to the family members that, you know, we weren't supposed to. But, you know, there's like little pieces. And I remember a guy gave me you know, one of the Rangers gave me a, a little sheet metal bracket. I'd never seen it before. I knew it was part of the aircraft, but I, I didn't know where, what it belonged to. And I was like, you know, hey, thanks, dude. You know, I'll give this to uh, Trey's wife, which is my uh, NCO was on that aircraft. Um. And one day, like two or three days later, I'm in the aircraft. I drop a pencil in the cockpit. And you can't just bend over because the cyclic stick is in the way between your legs. You got body armor, ammo. So you kind of lean off to the side and kind of stretch your arm down and pick it up. And when I did that, I saw underneath underneath where your feet go uh, for the pedals. There's these two sheet metal tracks for your heels. And that bracket was underneath. And I saw it and I almost threw up. You know, uh, it just, it it dawned on me at the moment what that was and how violent that crash
1: had to be. I mean, you've gone through all this, right? You've pushed yourself to the limit at this point in time. Uh, You you have to do this recovery operation of all those people who were killed there. Um, And you're dealing with all this stuff. Are you still somebody who's sitting here thinking like, I got to keep going? I got to keep fighting? Because now you're at 30 for almost 30 years. Well, but I mean, I kind of viewed myself as
0: the, you know, the village elder when it came to the 47 community in particular. Sure. And like, for example, at the end of Red Wings, you know, so everybody's looking at me like, you know, what are you going to do here? Right. You know, and, and when we found Latrell, you know, they sent the HH 60s to go get him, or at least that was the plan. And I had a fit, you know, I was like, I'm going to go get him. I know the way in and out of that valley and a 60 can't do it right? It's too heavy. And they said, we stripped it down. There's no guns. There's no ammo, no armor. And I said, all right, fine. Uh, I'll plan the mission because I still had to bring more Rangers in to find people we hadn't found yet. And we only had like a 15, 20 minute window to do that once during the night. So I knew I I had to do that. And uh, the air force guys were like, "All right, yeah, go for it. Right. So I planned all the fires. I planned the egress, ingress, the timing, And then as they came out with him, I went in with more Rangers and, um, everybody was just going to look at me like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I'm like, we're going to go get them, you know, and here's how we're going to do it. There was a conventional unit we asked to help us, uh, out of the 18th airborne Corps, And when I gave them a briefing of what we were doing, they politely declined and said, that's our guys aren't aren't good enough for that. They don't have the skills. Like they do have the skills. They just got to have the balls, you know? And, um, I'm sorry. That's a little emotional there, but
1: no. It's the totally okay. um,
0: the uh, when we got back, we did a memorial for everybody. It was that night, and I stood there like everybody else, very stoic and professional. And when I walked away, I went behind, in between two bee huts in in the uh, in the shadows, and I just kind of uh, knelt down and,
1: and, cried, and cried. It was uh, it was rough. I I can't, I can't even imagine. I mean, I. I... Don't know how you're not crying right now. Like, it's a little
0: bit. You know, and we went home about uh, two weeks later, uh, and I had a crew chief with me that was on my aircraft. And we Mm -hmm. stopped in Amsterdam, and uh, I bought him a beer. I was like, here's beer, you know, we're almost home. And he goes, sir, I got to ask you. He goes, "Uh, I was scared shitless that that first when we launched on the QRF. He goes, I don't know how you did it. And I'm like, did what? He goes, you weren't scared. And I was like, well, the hell I wasn't. I said, I didn't know what I was going to do. And he's like, well, you didn't let us know that we didn't know we were ready to follow you everywhere and uh, so that <clears throat> sorry no, that's the um, really okay that's what i could do was uh, well
1: i mean look it, it's got to be somewhat uplifting to hear them say i'd follow you anywhere you know i mean that's you know that's a, a big part of of uh of leadership uh and knowing that those guys were to do that and they trusted you wholeheartedly um with their lives knowing how difficult the mission was and how scared that they were and with no hesitation, they said, hey, if uh, Chief Max's going, I'm going. Um, and that, that, while it doesn't bring anybody back, uh, it certainly, you know, reminds you that uh, the job you did for all the years that you did it uh, was paying dividends with those around you. Right. Um, that and, said,
0: and that's kind of where I, where I felt it was hard to quit, you know. And, um, you know, like I've got a chapter on my book where I, I said, you know, should have quit. You know, I actually, the title of the book originally was Couldn't Quit. And the uh, the publisher changed it. So they're like, now call signs better. Like, All right, whatever. You know, I don't care. But uh, you know, I should have quit. There was a point right around. You know, I got another tri- thing I call it uh, Bo- Bergdahl trips the scales right, and that's where mm-hmm. uh, my wife went. You know, essentially, uh, you know, uh, she just went right down the drain because uh, what happened there is not only are we chasing him, but my replacement comes in. We haven't found him yet. And my replacement, I go down to Kandahar, I'm at customs and I get a phone call. Is there a CW five Mac in the room? It's like, Oh, it's me. And that can't be good. Right. So I go answer the phone and it's the, you know, the OIC at Sharana. He's like, Oh, you got to come back. Your replacement had a heart attack and died. Oh. And I'm like, Oh, right. So I go back, you know, they send a helicopter for me. I go back cause we're still doing Bergball missions you know, bounce around trying to catch him. And I have to call my wife and say, Hey, look, I know you thought I was coming home in 48 hours, but it's now two months because I got to do this guy's rotation. And, uh, she, she said, all right, no, no problem. But it was a problem. And, uh, you know, when I get back, they put me in the training company, you know, try to give me a break. And, uh, that's when I got to see, you know, how bad it had gotten. That's a whole Whole different trail of stories, but uh, that was kind of the point where I knew I was done. You know, as far as deployments.
1: Yeah. Um, what was harder to deal with? or What I mean, you know, you're still dealing with things with your wife, right? Because that's one of those things where if you had an addiction, you're, it never goes away. You're you're living with it for the rest of your life. But you're living with some of the the memories from Red Wings for the rest of your life as well. Um, so, does one weigh on you more than another?
0: No, they all, just all different kind of ways. work together. I mean, I, there's 23 names on the Night Stalker Monument of guys that I either was, you know, good good work friends with or actually good friends with. 23. And, uh, you know, because you lose a Chinook, you're losing between five and ten guys right. at crew, you know, depending on what configuration they're in, you know, plus the customers. And, uh, it, yeah, I mean, ten years of, of war being at the— Really at the pointy edge of the spear. And, you know, it was funny because I was in the training company when they got bin Laden. Mm -hmm. And they called us all into the hangar to tell us, oh, you're going to see something on the news. We've been trying to do this, you know, but they didn't say anything. But I remember being mad that they wouldn't just admit it to us. You know, it took, we had to, you know, find out other ways. And, um, you know, and sure enough, the guy that got him, the flight lead, the MH 47 flight lead, uh, was one of my competitors, if you would, like, as I look at my peers, right, we were all different levels of how good or how aggressive or how lucky we are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was one of the guys that was essentially a younger me, you know, in my <laughs> opinion. So I always knew he was going to get them, but I thought it would be earlier, you
1: know, like in 2005, 2006, not, uh, you know, when he did. So you're removed from combat now it's 2011. Um, you know, Bin Laden's already been captured. And I bring up Extortion Seventeen because obviously yeah. it's one of the worst uh, aviation crashes in, in military history. Um, all thirty-eight people on board were killed. Seventeen Navy SEALs. One of the toughest days uh, of the entire war on terror. Um, you watch that, and, and when you hear about that, what are you feeling? What's your reaction? How much of a toll is that taking on you?
0: Well, yeah, I went to the. I was in the states, and we we flew in on a. On a C130 went to the memorial at uh, Damneck. And you know the sad thing about that is the the lack of special operations rotorwing aircraft is what why they were flying on a conventional chinook. They you know they went to essentially uh, reinforce a ranger element that was uh, troops in contact and the closest rotorwing asset that they had access to was extortion. And the the sad thing with that is extortion the conventional units that were supporting the uh, the JSOC elements had to have so much time in country experience. The pilots had to have so much experience. And uh, the big key was they had to have so much time in country and they had to do an offset infill. They couldn't go to the X, right? They couldn't land outside the door. And that aircraft that night wasn't one crew from that unit. It was two different crews out doing a local area orientation. Essentially, the old crew that was leaving – was teaching the new crew where to get gas, where to land and loiter, you know, that kind of stuff. So they didn't even know each other, and which in itself presents problems in crew coordination, decision-making. You know, the new guys are thinking the old guy knows what he's doing. The old guy is thinking, wow, the new guy is capable, and maybe he is, but you don't know because you don't know each other. And they ran right up the you know, the fastest way in there, and which is one of the things that, you know, if it weren't my peers, maybe they'd have done the same thing. But the rules of engagement are different. You know, the the JSOC aircraft have different rules of engagement. We might have suppressed where they didn't. And if it were me, I, I wouldn't have been the one running up the valley. I'd have gone around. I'd taken the extra five minutes based on my lessons learned through the years. So it's,
1: you know, a terrible, terrible loss of life, you know. When do you actually finally sign paperwork to get out? so uh my wife dies in uh September of twenty
0: twelve right she overdosed, and uh, the regiment was very kind to me they They offered to create a position for me where I would be the face of the regiment I could deploy if I wanted I could stay home if i wanted i could but what they wanted me to do was to go around because I had a reputation with the ground forces. I could go there and tell them what to do you know better than an l o and i was a I was going to be a goodwill ambassador essentially. Uh, or I could go to Fort Rucker and do the shoot-down assessment team, which is kind of like the NTSB. You know, if an aircraft is shot down, you know, they send up a team out and they figure out what shot it down and ways to combat that. And that was a pretty good job. But I came up to New York City to unveil a statue called America's Response, which is the horse soldier statue at uh, Ground Zero. And I got sent up there because I flew them in. And so me and uh, Master Sergeant Elmore – Uh, unveil the statue and we go to some parties and things like that and at the time the west point flight detachment commander position had an opening coming up right so it's a cw-5 position two UH uh-72 aircraft and two cessna 182s you fly the superintendent around you fly the skydiving team you fight fires you do some stuff like that you know it's a really cool assignment and i get told well so here i'm in new york city i'm like you know what Maybe this is where I can meet somebody because, you know, they're in Clarksville. You know, uh, the, the pool of women my age that aren't already married mm-hmm. or haven't you know been destroyed by their previous husbands, you know, is, is kind of small. So I thought the pool of fish would be a little bigger uh, up here. And um, so I put my name in the hat and I was told uh, by the general of Army Aviation I could have any job but that one because it had, had previously had two night, night stalkers. As the commander and the regular army, I wanted to get some other uh, people in there. They thought we were kind of hogging it, which I, we probably were. Mm-hmm. But so I get there and, you know, I buy a house. I meet the, my current wife uh, and things are going really well. And what really turned me around emotionally was the cadets, the West Point cadets that were firsties, the seniors uh, on the jump team. Uh, the first day I went out to the, the drop zone, we had to do a safety brief at the beginning of the season. And these two cadets who are now night stalkers, uh, flying 47s, uh, are like, "Hey, sir, would you be our leadership mentor?" I'm like, "Sure." I don't know what that entails, right? And uh, I got to know them very well. They actually convinced me to skydive, which you know I consider myself scared of heights. And you know, as a pilot, it's kind of funny, but they talked me into a tandem out of the UH-72 onto West Point, and I got the bug. I actually, got licensed with them. Um, And so I fell in love up here, and the Army at my three years on assignment said, All right, uh, you got to go back to the community. Uh, You know, I was going to be General Cleveland's uh, CW5, or at least I was in the running for that. Another guy accepted it. I turned it down and said I would retire. And uh, I stayed here, you know, and I ended up in emergency services. He was a deputy commissioner. So it's almost like being in JSOC or other joint operations, you know, like the. The police hate the fire guys. The fire guys hate the EMS guys <laughs> until something happens. And everybody hates government.
1: Got it. No, right. right.
0: <laughs> but then something happens and they all work together. They all go have a beer afterwards. And then they start talking shit again and they all hate each other again. You right, know, and it's right. like, wow, it's like the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. It's great.
1: You know, I've had a good time with it. You know, I, I hate to ask a loaded question, but I just kind of gauge emotionally where you are. Look, no. All loss of life in general, especially after you've been to combat, you know, you look at it as something that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and for somebody who's used to being at the controls, literally and figuratively, um, you know, you always feel like you're in a position where if you have control, you'll be able to dictate an outcome. That said, uh, what has been tougher for you to deal with the loss of your wife or the loss of, of soldiers that you've otherwise felt like you could have should have protected?
0: Mm-hmm. Probably uh, my wife, actually, you know, because she sort of signed up for the Army wife thing before the war. You know, the other guys were in it. We were all participants. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt I was a good steward of my responsibilities. And, you know, I saved a lot of people uh, or my flight did, you know, We I don't know how many we did, but guys that that would have died had we not, you know, gone into, you know, machine gun fire RPGs to bring them out. That's what we do. That's the Night Stalkers. You know, in the fall of Afghanistan, a good friend of mine was there with a Chinook that was brought in specifically to get people outside the wire. And, uh, you know, they brought a C-17 in, built that thing up, did a mission or two, and then they got turned off because the place was falling. But that's, you could say, wow, that's a suicide mission. It's like, well, it wasn't.
1: And uh, everybody would have done it if given the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I am, I'm in awe. Uh, of all that you have been able to do uh, in your career, uh, and given everything that you've had to deal with um, and the challenges and struggles, because while again you read the resume at the beginning of things and it seems glorious and, and, and it looks like it, right? Because you, you check all the major parts of the war that everybody seems to know. Um, what people don't know is all the underlying stuff that goes along with that and the toll that it takes on your mind, your body, your soul, your family, your loved ones, and uh and other soldiers around you and so you know heartfelt i just want to genuinely thank you for for all that you've put on the line over the course of your nearly 36 years um oh, thank you. of service because you no, know, like i said at the beginning i enjoyed almost all of it almost all of it yeah well you know for, for the parts that you didn't enjoy i think that's what what I thank you for the most, you know? I mean, it's easy to fly around with your hair on fire, dive in, pick somebody out of battle, you know, uh, get them to a to a, a, a MASH unit or, or, or combat hospital and save their life, and you get a pat on the back. While that's difficult, and only a few people in the world can do it, at the end of the day, um, it's a smile because everybody is on the positive end of things. It's the parts you don't enjoy um, that really... Uh, take a toll and to make a difference on, on where you are mentally in, in your life and, and, and how you're surviving every day. And I, I guess that is part of my next question as to how are you? I mean,
0: you No, know, I'm in a good place. Uh, one of the things that, you know, what I needed when my wife died was a change of venue, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I tell everybody everywhere I looked was a memory, you know, and it was bad because it was either a happy memory and now I was sad because that's no longer the case or it was a bad memory in which case I got angry so I left, went to New York, changed everything. You know, if if I hadn't got the the detachment job you near know, as the commander, there's just enough responsibility there and just enough stress getting the, the superintendent to D.C. in bad weather, you know, or fighting a fire or something like that, just enough stress to keep you going, like keep you motivated. If I had just retired, like my wife died, I'm miserable, I'm retiring and I'll be a civilian mission instructor with a 160th, I probably killed myself. You know, I mean, really, I mean, I I wasn't thinking I I just in hindsight, you know, that you hear about all these guys who, you know, they miss all of the the camaraderie and the importance of working together. And that was kind of me, you know, and so I got up here and I got to kind of ramp down just enough stress. You know, I, I was very family oriented. So if a guy told his wife, the commander said, I have to work this weekend. I'd be like, if you don't want him to work, you call me. And we'll see if we can't work something out, which is something I learned from a battalion commander in the 160th. You know, hey, talk to the wife, tell her, I know you got a baby coming. I need your husband for two weeks. I will send him back as soon as I can, you know, kind of thing. And that's how I was. And I remember everybody thinking, wow, you're so family oriented. Was like, and you should be, too. You know, and you can't always execute. You know, you can't always follow through on what you want to do. But, boy, if you have a choice make the choice and that, that work life balance it's it's really important and that's why yeah. I'm in a good place and being in emergency services sort of like a, an analog for being in the military it's yeah. just enough stress to
1: <laughs> you know keep me going uh, what have you told your kids about your experience in combat what do they know they uh, they know about almost all of it well I was going to say your military sons do yeah obviously yeah
0: and you know the my crazy my oldest son you know he, he flies F18s his first deployment i think he was on the bush uh they flew over afghanistan and he's a wizzo so he's the backseater and his front seater was an f-14 pilot originally that flew in the battle of robert ridge and he flew over and said hey there's where your dad his aircraft was and there's where this guy's aircraft was and i remember him telling me about that and then his next deployment he was in syria and the very first footage you saw on tv was his footage of the first bombs dropped on isis oh nice and and he would tell me stories, you know, we come back, we have some beers. He's like, yeah, dad, we ran out of ammo. We winchestered, and they still needed a, a, a show of force. So we came by, you know, a hundred feet, 500 knots. I'm like, they're shooting RPGs at us. I'm like, why, why are you doing it? You know, so, you know, it's like, I, I did what I did, hoping that I could finish the war or facilitate the end of the war from my perspective before my kids had to do it. And then they had to do it anyway. And then there's crazy. Um,
1: do you ever compare missions, like in retrospect, when you think back on difficulty, yeah. challenges? I mean, do, do you rank them, so to speak? Yeah.
0: Uh, the the toughest was Red Wings mm-hmm. because of the weather, the stress, the canalized terrain. And because I had to drag the D models with me, I couldn't use the weather to my advantage the way I wanted to. So I felt vulnerable. Any time that I felt like I didn't have control was was tough and, and maybe i have a little people ask me do you have ptsd it's like ah, i don't know maybe maybe a little and, and it the only time i see it manifest itself is when something important happens and i can't control it you know or i don't have a say so or you know like when covid happened and the you know the the state would do things that we yep. couldn't control you know and, and that would give me like anxiety you know uh but other than that you know the yeah the I've got th- three best landings in the world. One is the the Burgdahl raid where we thought we were going to get them with the command master. Station. I got to go there. The other one was I rescued a Delta team uh, or with a Delta team. I rescued some seals in near Jalalabad in the very beginning uh, and landed in a very small area in a cloud of dust with uh, machine guns being shot. And another time was a C-130 crashed in front of me during air refueling and I picked up the crew. Uh, on the side of a mountain, those are the three best landings I ever stuck, and uh, they're all associated with with things, you know. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a it was an honor to do these things with the people. And even now, you know, I, I kind of cut myself off from the community when I moved. You know, I didn't want anything to do with that previous life. So, like, you know, when I moved, I threw away all. My, sorry, guys, I threw away all my plaques and all that stuff. And I took pictures of them, so at least I had photos. But I didn't want any. I didn't want. I love you all. You know, in my house, I didn't want, you know, with all my awards and all that stuff, I wanted nothing to do with it. And then uh, when 12 Strong came out about the horse soldiers, I got invited to the premiere. And, you know, when I started getting asked questions and, you know, some of the fond memories came back and uh, I started opening up and I started meeting guys from the community again. And it just sort of, you know, at some point there, I decided to write a book. It took like you know. That was two my next years. question,
1: by the way. So when when does huh. Razor Row three show up? Yeah, so I was with them. Um, so Mark Mark Nooch is the commander of the
0: five nine five, right? He's all over the place now, talking about that, so I can use his name. Um, but he was writing a book, which he did called Swords of Lightning. It's very good, by the way. If you ever get a chance, written by him, Bob Pennington, and Jim DeFelice. So Jim DeFelice lives near me. He's the guy that wrote American Sniper. Hmm. And uh, so he was interviewing me for their book and I was telling him some of these stories and he said, you know, you got some good stories. You tell a good story. Why don't you write a book? And I said, like, ah, you know, I don't know. Like the guys don't like, you know, the community doesn't like the stories getting out there and I, I don't want to get hated, you know. And uh, so it was a while I so, I so I started writing a thriller, a fiction piece, and it was terrible. You know, but it's a first effort, right? And it, it didn't go anywhere. But so here we are now at the premiere for 12 Strong. And I'm with Jim DeFelice drinking a bourbon. And he goes, all right, so the thriller didn't go anywhere. Write a memoir. And I'm like, Jim, they're going to hate me if I do it. He says, just do it. And I started like the week after that premiere. And it uh, took roughly two years, and another year of, you know, trying to sell it and trying to promote it. And, uh, you know, a paper-wide a worldwide paper shortage, you know, it comes out in the middle of September. I have a couple of advanced copies if you want one. Give me an address, I'll send you one. Oh, um but, uh, yeah, the, the experience has been interesting to say the least. You know, I so Major Taylor, who you had on uh I don't I think the last episode, or at least the one I watched. Mm-hmm.
1: Now Lieutenant retired <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Dave Taylor, yeah.
0: Yeah, so he was a major back in the day, and uh we did a couple of missions that were just fantastic. Some of them are actually in the book. There's a hostage rescue we did and, and, a, and a mission out on the Iranian border where uh, I took off without him. I was so excited to go. This guy, the guy we were going after was somebody. We said, if if this guy ever shows up, we will drop whatever we're doing. We're going to go get him. Right. And the weather was so bad. Nobody else could go get him. Everybody wanted to go. Right? You know, back at Balad, you know, the Blackhawks wanted to go. And I was out in Ramadi with, with Dave. And uh, we got offered, hey, Al, if you think you can do this, we'll let the Rangers do it instead of the guys out of Bragg. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do this, right? So we plan the mission. We (laughs) run to the aircraft. I get it all fired up. They say, F ready, forward, ready. I clear for flight. I took off. And um, as I'm turning toward where we're going to go, the guy in the jump seat says, Al, are we going to bring the ground force? I was like, of course we are. You know, (laughs) we're – this was a weather check, you know, so I come back and I land and the Rangers had no idea. By the time they walked out, I was I was back on the ground and I told Dave about it during the after action review. I was like, hey, I took off without that. <laughs> so that was funny. That's it. That's it. The book, that, that whole thing. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I love I love the Rangers. Big guys.
1: Well, okay. again, um, the book is uh, Razor 03, uh, A Night Stalker's Wars. Uh, you can get it obviously anywhere that books are sold. Uh, beyond that, you can go to Alan's website, AlanCMac dot com, uh, for more information on, you know, your career and everything else, and obviously the book is linked there as well. But uh, uh, I, I am, as I said earlier, you know, I, I, all is the best word. I'm in awe of all that you have done. Uh, it has been an amazing, amazing journey, uh, and and I hope, you know, for for your sake that you know, as you mentioned before, you're in a good place and that uh, you're thriving now. Um, Thirty six years is never easy, uh, and while you enjoyed most of it, again. Uh, I, I hope the parts that you didn't enjoy so much allow you to still put your head on the pillow every night uh, and, and sleep well, knowing that it was a tough job, but not many could have handled it the way you did. And so from that aspect, again, I, I, I wish you very well, but it has just been a joy to hear your story. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I, I'm so humbled by this whole thing. I thank you very much for
0: having me on and thanks for your kind words. Uh, you know, but, there were many more just like me. I just happened to be the guy that was the the lead in some of these missions. And I wrote it down. So the other guys won't talk or can't talk. So I have the opportunity well, to tell. All others. I
1: ask is that after I, uh, after I, after I get the book, I'd like it, uh, I'll send it to you, get it signed and, and send it back to me. Oh, I'll just, no, I have a couple of them. I'll, I'll sign it send it. Oh, you well, then genuine, genuine. Thanks, That'd but it, it easy. you know, you got to sell a book, so I don't mind buying a book, you know, but uh, I'm remember. excited to read it. So, Uh, It has been great talking to you again. Alan Mack, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zinno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.